Hey, I'm Amory Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Chapter 4 The first time I saw Arden Wilson was ten years ago, in another intake center on a very different planet, a green planet with sweet air and soft grass and flowers, warm sunlight and flowing water. I loved it there, and I loved Arden from the very first moment I saw him. He seemed to appear out of nowhere one day, coming upon me and my friends, taking our lunch break in the park outside the resident services building. He introduced himself and explained he'd been asked by the company to organize a new transport hub in our city, so was relocating permanently and would need to be assigned to a pod. His childhood on Thane, where there were no pods or stat chips or intake, and his first assignment working in the black had not prepared him for the bureaucratic processes of home world, so he explained the procedures to him, and I pointed out the intake suite. He was unlike anyone I'd ever met. His hair and skin were golden and shone in the sun. His eyes were the rich blue of the ocean off my favorite beach walk. I couldn't keep myself from staring at him, and he seemed equally taken with me. When he thanked us for our help and promised to come back later, he never took his eyes off me. It felt both amazing and like being set on fire. Although it should have been a humdrum occurrence, when he appeared at my desk that afternoon with his new stat chip in his hand, for some reason it felt dramatic, like an important event was about to take place. He beamed at me and said, Remember me? in his warm, honey voice, as though there was ever any chance of my forgetting him. I barely recall plugging in his stat chip and seeing his data appear, and then hitting the sequence of keys that would cancel the automatic assignment process. It was something I'd never done before, something entirely against our policies, but I did it without a second thought. And then I manually coded in my own pod. You're in my pod, I said as I handed over his new credentials. His response was a brilliant smile. He then asked if he could wait for me so we could walk to the pod together. And then we talked, all the way home, and through dinner, and far into the night in the common room. I don't remember any of what we said. All I remember is Arden, beautiful Arden, magical Arden, and believing by the end of the day that I loved him and wanted to be with him always. But love at first sight is just a myth, and always is an impossibly long time. I look at him now, standing in front of me, in an intake center on a very different world, his stat chip in his hand. He's a little thinner and older, and his eyes are a little tired, but he's still beautiful. His golden hair is still thick and shiny, his eyes still bright and ocean blue. His expression is a mix of shock and uncertainty and maybe a hint of excitement. He's covered in dust, like all the rest of us here. Suddenly I'm angry, and I wish that I could scream. I didn't know you were here, he says haltingly. I thought you were dead? I finish the sentence for him and immediately wish I hadn't. He looks at the floor, then back at me. I thought maybe you had gone back to home world. A pause. I knew you weren't dead, he says quietly. My breath catches in my throat one more time, and I fight to bring some semblance of normalcy to my facial expression, my voice, my behavior. Although what would be normal in a situation like this, I wonder? How should you act when you suddenly find yourself face-to-face -face with the person who was your world for two years, who then ran away during the worst crisis of your life, a sequence of events you've been trying to make sense of ever since? Oh, dear God, pretend he's someone else, I tell myself. Pretend he's someone you've never met. Try small talk. Try official talk. Try 
anything but thinking about the past. I take refuge in the mundane. You're our new warehousing leader, I ask, although I've already figured out the answer. Yes, he responds. My glamorous career as a space pirate has ended. He offers a small smile, and I see a flash of long-ago Arden, the lightness, the ease. A voice in my head whispers, he'll fit in well here, and I involuntarily wince. He sees the expression, misunderstands it, and looks away. Let's get you set up, I say. Stat chip? All business now. He hands over his chip, and I plug it into the terminal, this time letting the program do its work. I don't even read the display as it runs. The processing finishes in less than a minute, and his credentials appear in the bin in front of him. He holds them up to examine them and is clearly taken aback. Is this right? He asks, waving them at me. I'm sure it is. That's what the program generated, I say stiffly. Surely he didn't expect me to repeat history for him. What's wrong with it? Nothing's technically wrong. It's just... <laughs> he lets out a short, anxious laugh. What? I demand. He reads aloud from his credentials. Residential assignment, pod C-1419. Pod leader, Faith Feathergrass. My mouth falls open, but nothing comes out. It's just as well. At that moment, Polly thunders into the intake with five other crew members in tow. Your overnight arrangements are all set. Faith here is seen to it, he booms. He catches sight of Arden and charges forward, shaking his hand energetically and slapping him on the back. Welcome to Iona, he says. You're ready to start settling in? I'm glad Faith has been taking care of you. Arden responds to Polly with the genuine warmth and charisma that have historically made people like him instantly. It appears to still work his magic. The expression on Polly's face is nothing short of charmed. Thank you, Polly. I'm looking forward to getting to know you and everyone here, Arden says. Excellent, Polly roars. Make Faith your go-to. She's a fine guide. She knows how to do everything around here. Faith, why don't you show him around? He then turns his attention to the other crew members. Arden can't help himself. The grand tour, then, he says enthusiastically. He smiles at me in a way that is innocent and intimate simultaneously. It makes a theatrical gesture toward the door. It's goofy and sweet with an undercurrent of significance. And he's painfully sincere. There's no way I can shield myself from these parts of him I loved so completely. And I smile back at him as I precede him out of intake onto the square. I won't ever let myself love him again, but apparently I can't make myself hate him either. It's good to see you, Faith, he says. I know he means it. Thank you, I say. I wish I could return the sentiment, but our past brings out the cautious part of me, the part that can't dismiss what happened. I'm concerned that I can't trust him, and after eight years, that I don't really know him anymore. I have to admit that I may never truly have known him at all. On that beautiful green and blue sweet-scented planet, Arden and I lived together for the better part of two years. We started off with separate quarters in the pod, but soon finagled the one large room that afforded extra space and privacy, where we spent our nights curled around each other in our big comfortable bed. Our suite was separated from the main house and common room by a covered walkway that ran through a small garden, where we often sat in the evenings to watch the fireflies spark and wander. If we timed everything just right, there were days when we didn't even see our other podmates, so we got to pretend we had the whole world to ourselves, living in the timeless bubble that contained only us and the rainbow-hued love we had for each other. I search my memories now for some sign of discontent and find none. There were no missed signals or red flags or signs of impending doom at the beginning. We were well-matched, deeply in love, and incredibly happy. Arden's one quirk was a sort of cheerfully indulgent dermophobia. He was a devoted scrubber of surfaces and utensils, anything that came in contact with our faces. 
He noted every cheek flush and runny nose anywhere around him. He insisted on quarterly checkups with medical for both of us and took on decontamination body cleanses for himself and encouraged them for everybody else. I didn't have the same conviction that made others regard sustaining themselves only on foul-smelling juice for five days as a personally fulfilling spiritual experience, but I couldn't see that it did any harm and it was certainly popular enough with other people. In retrospect, I suppose it could seem that he was anticipating something, but I don't really believe that. It was just Arden being Arden. His job was energy-consuming and difficult, while mine was dull and soul-leeching, so in those early months we spent our time together recharging in private, reading, hiking, traveling down to the beach to walk and swim, napping, drinking brew. We cuddled in front of our garden fire pit, we made love in our big comfortable bed, we fed each other at the little table in our room, and we talked about everything. But I learned later that for all our talking, Arden was a keeper of secrets from me, from himself, from everyone. In my mind, I still see the way his face changed the day he asked me about Shylor. I knew they'd met several days prior to talk about a possible transfer for Shylor from resident services to transit. Both had been happy with the meeting and felt things looked promising. Shylor never followed up, Arden said one night. He seemed excited about transferring. Do you know if he changed his mind? I think he's still interested, I said. He's been sick. Arden went pale. Sick, he repeated. Yeah, he came down with something suddenly. He's been out for about a week now. Do you know what's wrong? No, I just heard he was sick. What kind of symptoms does he have? I don't know. Does he live in a pod? Was he around a lot of other people? I don't know, Arden. He's a work acquaintance. I don't have that kind of insight into his life. Why are you asking me all these questions? Because it's important, damn it! He barked in a tone I had never heard him use before. Not angry, but intense and frightened. It scared me, and I must have looked it, because he immediately got control of himself again and softened his voice and his expression. I'd like to contact him if you know how to reach him, he said. I'll find out tomorrow, I promised. And like a storm cloud blowing away from the sun, the moment was over, and Arden's light and gentle personality returned. At least, it returned until several nights later, when I had to tell him that Shiler had passed away. So how long have you been on Iona? Arden asks in the here and now, shaking me out of my memories and back into the present. Ever since... I reframe my answer in mid-sentence. Eight years. I've been here almost eight years. You must like it, then. I'm used to it. It's Iona. I hope I get used to it. It's very different than... Arden does a little reframing of his own. Uh, it seems very different. You'll have formal orientation tomorrow, I say. It won't feel so different after that. I know that's not what he means, and he knows I know, but he lets it go without comment. We walk toward the presentation theater, which sits in the middle of town. I plan on giving him a thorough walking tour, starting there and spiraling out to include clinical, maintenance, safety and security, goods distribution, warehousing, research and engineering, construction, and ending at residential at around sunset. Wenda will already have received an automated communication to let her know that there will be one more for dinner as well as for overnight. I'll have to work on adjustments for his more permanent assignment to our pod tomorrow. Another hundred feet to the theater, and then I can start my basic new resident spiel. Can we just walk in silence for a hundred feet? Apparently not. Things are going well here? It's a lot more populated than I expected, Arden says. I think so. We're busy. We're growing. We recently got an influx of new residents. Really? The company didn't mention that. I'm not surprised. 
Yeah, they closed down another station and most of their people transferred over. Oh. His brow creases momentarily. Bartizel? Yes. Oh. Silence. Finally. When I take a sidelong look at him, Arden's face is an expressionless mask, but I'm surprised to see his lips are corking down into a frown. We reach the theater and I launch into Iona 101. This building is the Presentation Theater, the first building constructed on Iona. It originally held residences, working space, and important services for the small but determined team that founded our station. It's been repurposed, obviously, and now is the center of recreation and learning on Iona. If you come this way, I can show you how the founders approached the problem of multi-use from a unique perspective. I'm doing my best in personal guide routine. He's playing along, examining architectural details, and listening intently like a good new resident. I'm sure it's only a matter of time before the facade breaks down, though, and he'll probably want to talk about the way our time on Homeworld ended. But I'm not sure I'll agree. I've been filtering this in my head for eight years. I'm starkly aware that I can't let it be about what he wants this time. We're halfway through the tour when my headset goes off. This time, it's Winda. As one of only a few people on Iona who know any details of my past, she is clearly aghast, as she says, without any preliminaries. Dear God, not that Arden Wilson. Actually, yes, I say. Arden has thoughtfully moved several yards away so I can respond to the hail with a certain degree of privacy. And you're with him now? Again? Yes. Faith, I'm so sorry. Are you all right? I think so, but it's early yet. I attempt to laugh. Winda snorts derisively. Does Polly know? No, he doesn't. And he's truly been assigned to our pod? I ran the program myself, I sigh. Every time I think about it, it feels more unfair. We can make some kind of adjustment and move him into a different pod? No, it's okay. It's not okay. I don't want you to have to go through this. Suddenly, I'm excruciatingly tired. Oh, really, Wenda? We'll talk about it later, I say. I'll see you at dinner. I turn back to Arden, who is pretending not to have listened to every word I said into my headset. Let's uh, finish up, and I'll take you back to the pod and you can meet your new mates, I say. They're anxious to get to know you. Arden smiles wanly and says, whatever you say. We get to the pod just before sunset. Laughter and the buzz of convivial conversation float down the path to meet us, and as we walk into the common room, Arden receives a boisterous greeting from all 16 people gathered around the long-serving table. Wenda meets us at the door and ushers him to a suite between Darrow and Hen, both of whom start peppering him with questions. He flashes his breathtaking smile around the table. Even Wenda can't help but smile back. I nod toward the kitchen, and the two of us leave the common room, ostensibly to serve dinner. As soon as we cross the threshold, she turns to me and says, Wow. Arden still Arden, I say, reaching for the serving platters and bowls and utensils. You are not kidding about him, she says, still looking back toward the common room. He's magical. Well, that's one way to describe him. And gorgeous, too. I, I don't think I've ever seen... Wenda catches herself in mid-sentence and looks at me guiltily. That's another way. Also true. Wow, she says again. Has he said anything about then? I haven't let him, I admit. I suppose he'll want to talk eventually. I, I don't know if I'm ready. How do you feel about him being here? I suddenly realize I've been struggling with this question for the last several hours. I don't know, 
I say. I used to fantasize about what it would be like to see him again, what I would say, how I would feel. And it doesn't fit any of the scenarios I anticipated. It was a shock to see him so unexpectedly, and I was really angry at first. For, for everything in our past, for him invading my safe place here, for, for showing up on Iona. But I know he didn't choose this place. He didn't have any idea I was here, so that only lasted a little while. You see how charming he is. He's brilliant at diffusing negative emotions. I'm just kind of in the moment now, and I don't really know how I feel about it. You think that's because of your relationship with Graham? Graham. My stomach drops with the realization that I haven't thought about Graham once since Arden walked into intake and spoke my name. Wenda reads my face and says, uh-oh. We spend a few minutes working in the kitchen in silence. I'm slicing thick hunks of home-baked bread, and she's ladling steaming hot soup from a pot on the stove into a serving tureen. At last, she asks, are you going to tell them? Tell who what? Tell the two of them about each other. I hesitate. I'm not sure how much there is to tell, I say. They'll meet, obviously. If Arden doesn't hear about my relationship with Graham from me, he'll hear about it from someone sooner or later, so it's kind of a moot point. Arden and I have a history, but that's all it is. It's in the past. <laughs> the question isn't about what's in the past, Winda says, lifting the tureen and casting me a meaningful look. It's about what's in the future. With that, she turns and heads out into the common room to start dinner service. She's greeted by loud, energetic cheers. As I pick up the tray of bread and follow her out, I'm struck by the fact that I can clearly discern Arden's voice in the middle of all the noise, automatically and without any effort at all. His voice, normally so even and calm, was raised in anger at me only once that I can remember. How could you forget to tell me he's dead? he shouted. His face was flushed, his eyes wild in a way I'd never seen. I only just found out. I had no idea, I began. But he cut me off. When did he die? Um, I don't really. Faith, this is important. You have to tell me when he died. Last Thursday, I think? Arden, I, I don't understand how. It doesn't matter whether you understand or not. How did he die? He was sick. I know that. What was he sick with? What were his symptoms? I need to know what killed him. I don't know. Oh, for shit's sake! Arden threw his hands up into the air dramatically. You didn't even ask how he died? It wasn't my business, I shouted back, tired of the unfairness of his interrogation. I barely knew Shylor. I wasn't going to pressure his widow for information. You're the one with the sudden all-consuming interest in it. If you want to know, you go ask her. I'm sure she'll be delighted to go over the details of this life tragedy with a complete stranger. That seemed to break through to him. His face changed abruptly to an expression of contrition and sorrow. He took a step toward me. I reflexively stepped back. He extended his hands to me, palms up, pleading. I looked at him suspiciously for what felt like a long moment then hesitantly placed my hands in his. He pulled me to him in a tight but gentle embrace. I'm so sorry, Faith, he whispered into my hair. I'm so, so sorry. I'm being an ass. I, I don't want to be an ass to you. I'm so sorry. I don't understand, I whimpered. I truly didn't understand his behavior, but I recognized that it meant Arden was hiding something, 
and that our happiness was potentially built over a base of secrecy and lies. The idea alarmed me, but I thought that we would talk it out, work through whatever this was. I was sure he eventually would tell me everything because we loved each other, and that's what people who love each other do. But we never got the chance. After dinner, everyone in the pod wants to talk to Arden. He's happy to entertain them with one energetically rendered story after another about his adventures in space. He's been many places and interacted with many cultures over the last eight years. I notice his stories almost always focus on breaking down stereotypes and finding a way to make even the most extreme-sounding practice relatable. I notice, too, that those experiences have taught him to listen more and have sanded down his rough edges and tempered his intense, fiery nature into one that tends to move toward gentleness and a spirit of kindness. I wonder if this is a holdover from the lessons he learned on Homeworld during the time we were together. I fight back a burst of sentimentality, excuse myself, and head into my quarters for some quiet time. I catch up on some pod management tasks first, adjusting our water and food requests to accommodate an additional pod mate, then extinguish the lights and stretch out in my hammock in the dark, where I can see the stars from my window. I replay Wenda's comment in my head, but I can't put my finger on how I really feel. There's a part of me that knows I've truly missed Arden, a part that is strangely happy to have him crashing into my life on Iona, no matter how much trepidation it might cause. There's another part that resents the complexity that his presence brings into my life, because it's also clear that he still cares about me and I can't yet sort out my emotions about him. But then there's the conflicted part of me that can't forget how he left me behind all those years ago, and believes that for all the charm and sweetness he might be able to deliver now, nothing can make up for that transgression. I shift between all these feelings as rapidly as the dust clouds blow across Ionian dunes. It's only been a day, I tell myself. I'm sure I'll have more clarity soon. I have to have more clarity soon. But my dreams offer nothing but a replay of the pain I've already felt so many times, revisiting in my sleep the agony of the time of the waning. Shiloh's death was not just a tragic occurrence. It was the beginning of an avalanche of sickness and death that swept over our community on Homeworld, striking down young and old alike without any obvious connection. The next to pass was Shiloh's wife, Adina. She couldn't eat, couldn't drink, and was in intense pain. She was exhausted, but couldn't sleep. In my dream, I see her frail form waving to me from behind a window, and dream me hopes she's feeling better, but I know the reality is that she got sicker and sicker, and then she too was gone. From apparent health to her dying breath took about two weeks. The medics were baffled. No one had ever seen anything like this. On the day of Adina's funeral, one of our own pod members complained of a headache and nausea and went to bed feverish and exhausted. Roddy was in his thirties, a respected horticulturist and an enthusiastic outdoorsman. A few days later, he was better and walked around the pod reassuring everyone that he had just been working too hard. In my dream, I watch him at dinner in our common room, suddenly developing a nosebleed he couldn't stop. He's frozen that way in my mind, an expression of shock and surprise on his face, holding his napkin and then his hand and even the hem of his shirt to his face, trying to halt the flow. I don't see the rash that covered 80% of his body, or hear him complain about the fever that burned with a vengeance, although those things happened almost simultaneously, and he died only a few hours later. I toss in my hammock, remembering the way everyone was either sick or terrified of getting sick. Arden was no longer the only germaphobe on our block, and wild speculations flew as to what this disease was, 
where it had come from, and why it struck down whom it did. Someone called it the waning of civilization, and although the idea seemed like ridiculous hyperbole, the name stuck, and so it began to be called the waning. For his part, Arden refused to indulge in any speculation or offer his opinion on any aspect of the spreading sickness. I had no objection to that. It seemed like a ghoulish pastime to me anyway. And although we didn't talk about it, his light-hearted personality began to erode. With each reported illness and death, he became more grim. The waning had a devastating impact on the social fabric of our society. Normal life ground to a halt. News of the epidemic reached other sectors quickly, and visitors started avoiding our world. Transfers stopped. Commerce slowed to a crawl. The company issued reductions in hours for most of us in residential services because with fewer residents and no new transfers, we weren't needed. Arden's transport hub project was put on hold until further notice. But he continued to get up every morning and spend the day traveling the area, helping out people wherever he could. He did odd jobs and small tasks that people could no longer accomplish for themselves. He carried messages to and fro for people too frail or too frightened to go out. He sat with the sick and the dying. People throughout our community began calling him an angel, a godsend. They were grateful for his help and for his friendly way of dealing with them. He showed no fear of anyone, no matter how sick they seemed to be. He didn't offer them platitudes or artificial hope. He was there to get done whatever needed doing, and he did so without fear and without complaint. Throughout the months that the waning held our community in its grip, I tried to stay close to Arden. We still fell asleep holding each other in our big bed, but Arden often got up during the night to pace around the garden and stare at the stars. We still ate at our little table by the picture window, but the laughter we used to share was a rarity. Over the course of those months, the deaths became like a waterfall, cascading one after the other, taking more and more people with faster momentum until human services could no longer keep up with the burials and began burning the bodies in the smelters in the industrial part of the city. In my sleep, I smell the transition from sweet, clean air to the dense fog of dust and cremation, ashes and death, choking the living with grief and despair. It's an enormous relief to hear the rising chimes ring and to awaken from my dark dreams of home world to Iona's pale sunlight creeping through my window. I feel distinctly unrested, but drag myself through my morning routine to prepare for another day. I pull my headset on as I walk toward the common room. In seconds, Polly is booming into my ear. How's the new guy? He yells. He's fine, I say. I have him scheduled for formal orientation this morning, and he'll be ready to meet with the team this afternoon. Polly says something over his shoulder, and in the background I hear Fanny peal with laughter. Polly snorts derisively. Fanny saw him giving you the tour yesterday. She says he's definitely fine, he reports. Great. I attempt a fake laugh, which falls spectacularly short. I haven't even left my pod yet, and I'm already crabby and short-tempered. I stop outside the common room to try to finish this conversation so I can compose myself a little more. Anything else? I'm about to grab breakfast and head out. Do you need help with the lander launch? I ask, trying to craft my tone into something business-like rather than irked. Nah, that's sorted. We have two maintenance requests you can handle, but I think for today, if you can keep shepherding the new guy along, that'll be enough. What's his name again? Arden. Arden Wilson. Polly speaks over his shoulder, and I hear Fanny's laugh again. Don't even tell me what she said, I say, before Polly can speak into his mic again. Okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll see you and, uh, Arden. Arden, this afternoon, then. 
The connection goes blessedly silent, and I pull off my headset for a moment. Polly's roar is replaced by the sound of Arden's voice curling through the voices of my podmates like a stream of cool water on this dry planet. The scene in our common room is a relief after the night I've had, the exact opposite of the stark, frightening cold of homeworld in the grip of that pandemic. The soft Ionian sunlight makes the windows glow, and most of my podmates are seated at a long table with their breakfasts. Most are also listening eagerly to a story Arden is telling with great animation. Hen and Holly are particularly taken in, and each twin takes turns interjecting a gasp or an exclamation of delight. Wenda meets me at the kitchen door with a cup of coffee. They've been like that for half an hour, she says, nodding toward the twins. That might be the longest I've ever seen Hen sit still. Maybe Arden should be youth education leader instead of warehousing leader, I murmur, and Wenda stifles a small laugh. Arden appears to reach a natural break in his story, and Wenda takes advantage. You two are going to be late for school if you don't leave now, she says in her sternest mom voice. Hen and Holly wail objections but recognize the tone and hustle to gather up their personal belongings and lunches and hurry out the door. Arden offers a lopsided smile to Wenda and mounts the word sorry. In completely atypical fashion, Wenda giggles and colors and waves her hand in the air and says, Oh, no, it's all right. I can see they're just fascinated by you. She stares at Arden, and I stare at her, until she appears to remember I'm standing next to her, at which point she decides to hurry into the kitchen immediately for some unarticulated reason. Arden, staring into his coffee, seems to miss this whole exchange. The rest of my podmates also stir to life, muttering about time, and soon it's just me and Arden in the common room. Wenda clatters in to bring me some breakfast and hurries back into the kitchen before I can even say thank you. I watch him sitting there, warm and golden and relaxed with a soft smile on his lips, and I decide I feel all right about him being here, like I have this in hand somehow. I smile back at him. Is there a part two to the tour? He asks, and I realize he's really asking how much time he'll get to spend with me today. No part two, I say, and he pouts charmingly. After I drop you off for formal orientation this morning, I'll take care of a couple of maintenance projects down in the pit. This afternoon, we'll meet with Polly and the rest of your team. You can set up your duty roster and assignments and sort out anything else you need as warehousing leader. Tomorrow, you get tossed into the deep end to see if you can swim. He sighs. Warehousing, he mutters. What have I become? Pragmatic? I offer. He shoots me a mock scowl. It's a different world out here, I explain. We don't specialize much. That's the difference with being on an independent world as opposed to a company world. We all pitch in to do whatever jobs need to be done. It's team-based, and it may feel informal, but it works really quite nicely. You'll see. I hope so, he says. He leans toward me slightly. His hand barely touches mine. My pulse jumps, and my heartbeat starts to ricochet. So much for having things in hand. Hen bursts in at that moment, having left his holo tablet behind in the morning rush. He treats Arden to a stream of questions as he thunders around the room searching for his belongings. Arden sits back, and as he does so, our hands break connection, but he keeps his eyes on me as he answers Hen's inquiries. The teen finally locates his holo tablet, grabs it, and runs back out, shouting, Can we talk about that at dinner, Arden? To which Arden calls out, Sure thing! I stare down at the table, rattled by the intensity of my response to him. But when I look up at him again, his expression has reset to casual and light, leaving me wondering if I imagined the whole episode. Well, I guess it's time for us to go, too, he says, draining his coffee cup and setting it back on the table with a thump. We stand in unison, and he steps back so I can move past him and precede him out the door. We make the walk in comfortable silence. I start to feel more settled once I drop him off at the presentation theater and veer across the square toward maintenance. I'm relieved for the assignments this morning. Some quiet time in the pit is exactly what I need. 
Plus, it's been days since I've been able to collect any parts from my project, and the busted hover flats and skiff controller waiting for me to break them down might have the exact components I'm looking for. It could still be a good day, I think. It's Iona. Anything can happen if you're resourceful. Down in the silent belly of the pit, though, my memories catch up with me, and I find myself sucked back to the time on Homeworld, remembering Arden's desperation, my sadness, and the dark heart of the company revealed. The waning hit our own pod hard, then. By the time our pod leader Lilette died, there were only four of our pod members remaining. Two nights after her passing, we held a remembrance ceremony for her in the garden. We tried to laugh and be joyful in remembering because that's the way we were all taught on Homeworld, to send our loved ones off with a smile. But in the middle of things, Arden's face grew dark, and by the end of the ceremony, he had disappeared. Afterwards, I sat in the garden, waiting for him for hours. When at last he returned and sat down with me, it was clear that something had changed. I took his hand, rested my head on his shoulder, and waited. He turned his head to nuzzle and kiss my hair gently and leaned against me in turn. After several minutes of silence, he whispered, I don't want any more people to die. It was an opening, not a finished statement. I waited and watched my breath make frost in the cold dark. I'm sorry, Faith. I've lied to you about too much. I have to tell you the truth now. My heart skipped a few beats. You're sick, I said, squeezing his hand tight. Yes, he replied. I forced myself to keep breathing. I waited for him to elaborate, but he didn't. Maybe you won't die. Sometimes people don't, I ventured. I didn't know what else to say. He shook his head emphatically. No, you don't understand. I'm not going to die. This this is all my fault. What's your fault? Arden's body tensed as he gathered himself emotionally. When he spoke, his voice was no more than a dry croak. The waning. I brought it here. You're right. I don't understand, I said. Explain it to me. He sighed and gestured toward the stars. Something happened to me out there. I was exposed to something and became a carrier. It's why they sent me to Homeworld. They sent you here to create a transport hub. That was an excuse. They sent me here to get me off the ship because they were afraid the sickness would spread. His shoulders slumped, partially in defeat but also in relief. The secret he had held onto with such determination was at last out in the open. They thought you would make others sick, but they sent you here? to a place with a huge population and thousands of travelers passing through every week? How does that make sense? I felt my anger rising at the unfairness of it all. Arden's tone was apologetic. They thought no one here could contract the disease, that it would be safe. Otherwise, they would never have agreed to come. What made you think that? The company provided evidence that the entire population of Homeworld was immune. I gasped, confused and alarmed at the same time. How would they reach that conclusion, exactly? The historical pandemics, remember them? Five pandemics about a hundred years apart that devastated the population but then led to decades of success and revitalization. I parroted the lines found on every school child's hollow tablet about the historical pandemics. Natural occurrences and evidence of our evolutionary process at work. Yeah, I had that class in school, too, he said with a grimace. I became interested in the pandemics after I got sick myself, and I did a substantial amount of research. 
I tracked down some long-forgotten documentation the company maintained on them throughout its history. The pandemics weren't natural. Each was specifically planned by the company to control population growth and winnow out unwanted traits and weaknesses. I was horrified. We had heard murmurings of this type on Homeworld before, but simply dismissed them as the ravings of a lunatic fringe conspiracy. The company had always gone to great lengths to demonstrate its compassion and concern for its citizens, and that reputation had brought more than one independent planet willingly into the company's fold. The fifth pandemic was based on the virus that infected me, Arden explained. All native homeworlders would have been descended from someone who survived that pandemic and so would have developed immunity. I scowled into the darkness. That doesn't make sense, I argued. Even if that were true, it's been a long time since the last pandemic, and we've had people move here from other sectors who would be at risk. There's one last detail, Arden interjected. That sweet scent in the air here? It's not natural either. It's an aerosol additive. Everyone here is exposed to a hundred different pharmacological compounds around the clock. It's to protect the population because there are so many people passing through from other worlds, other sectors, where we have no idea what kind of pathology might exist. So in that sense, this was the ideal place to send me. A place where the air itself is actively scrubbed of anything invasive and inoculatory compounds are delivered constantly to the entire population. It was supposed to be perfectly safe. Perfectly safe, I repeated, shaking my head. So what went wrong? I don't know, but I hope if I leave, it will stop. There in our garden, with the black night sky arching overhead, memories swirled around my brain and blended with what Arden had just told me. Abruptly, they combined into one startling, blinding truth. It won't, I said as I sat up and faced him. It won't stop, because it's not you. I made him come with me to the residential services building right then, in the middle of the night. I held my breath as I waved my credentials over the scanner at the rear employee entrance, but the lock whirred and the door swung open without hesitation. The low-level lighting that ran down the hallway was enough for us to make our way to intake. And like the door, my terminal acknowledged my credentials and swiftly came to life. My passwords and access codes all remained active. They must think we're incredibly stupid, I muttered. Give me your stat chip. Haven't we already been through this? Arden asked, handing over his stat chip with a scowl. I appreciate the effort, Faith, but we're wasting time at this point. I need to get on a transport out of here if this world is going to have half a chance. I paid no attention to his monologue. Instead, I rammed the chip into the processor and watched the data spool out from it just as I did on the day we met. Only this time I didn't interfere and kept scanning for what I knew I had seen on that first day. And there it was. I stopped the program and pointed at the glowing data stream floating in the dark air. Look, I said, under antibodies and infectious protocol, what do you see? Arden leaned over my shoulder and began to scan his own health information. There was a long pause and a question in his voice as he replied, Nothing. Right. Nothing. No infection. No antibodies. No protocol. According to this, you're an infectious carrier of exactly nothing. But, but that's not possible. I was sick. I... I was deathly ill. I'm sure you were, I replied. Hold on. I restarted the program and let it process the data to its natural conclusion and snorted when my expectations were fulfilled. And what do you see there? I asked, pointing. Shiler's pod. Arden gasped, leaning in closer as though he couldn't trust his own eyes. 
I was supposed to be assigned to Shiler's pod. You're being had, Arden, I said. You're not infected with anything, but they want you to think that you are, because this is the start of another pandemic and the company is behind it, and they want you to take the fall for it this time instead of them. By the time I climb out of the pit into Iona's anemic afternoon light, I am exhausted with struggling to shake the ghosts of the past from my mind. It's almost time to pick up Arden for the warehousing team meeting, so I walk over to the theater to meet him. The warehousing crew totals seven people. Arden is lead, and Polly, as always, will serve as coordinator. My role on the team will be as flex staff, taking on random tasks that come in and fit into my schedule. Two other people, both Bartizellians with warehousing backgrounds, complete the dedicated crew, and Ionians from maintenance and goods distribution are designated as on-call to contribute their expertise where necessary. Arden is sitting outside on the theater steps and offers up his easy smile as I approach. I automatically smile back. This feels normal and acceptable and not entirely uncomfortable as long as we stay focused on CHOP. He stands and walks out to meet me. How was it? I ask, and he nods his approval. I learned a lot, he admits, as we walk across the square together. Your planet is very different than a company planet, as you said. It's an interesting balancing act, maintaining your sovereignty when the company is in large part your bread and butter. I agree. It can feel a bit tenuous sometimes, but overall the personal freedom is worth it. I can certainly appreciate that, he says, and I know he is thinking about what happened to us as a result of living on a company planet. I wish I could tell him that the suffering we experienced on Homeworld at the hands of the company can't happen here. But despite Iona's status as an independent planet, I'm always aware of the company's reach and how much influence they can have here if they want. Iona has escaped the company's interest because we are small and don't draw attention to ourselves, but with the influx of Bardazel's population, combined with the presence of people who know all too well the reality behind the station's closing, as well as other incriminating factors, our history of anonymity may be coming to an end. I sincerely hope that isn't true, but I've been worried about this for a while. Even though I pretend it's simply a little diversion for my own amusement and a test of my expertise and ingenuity, my little project built out of scraps from the pit is evidence of my concern. Arden makes chit-chat as we climb the steps to Intake's door. The conference room lights are on, and multiple voices floating through the air means we must be among the last to arrive. I enter first and find myself unexpectedly face-to-face with Graham. He gives me a smile and a slightly quizzical look. I try to smile back and not appear quite so much like I've been punched in the chest, which is how I feel. But that feeling is nothing compared to the one that replaces it when Arden steps across the threshold and I see Graham's face flash in recognition, followed by the sound of Arden's laughter and voice saying in amazement, Graham Thorne, how the hell are you? It's been years. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We'll see you back next Thursday for a new episode of Read, Write, Geek.